Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Welcome, everybody, to another installment in our summer sermon series called Uncommon Time. I will alert you right off the top here. This is a a kind of a difficult sermon to preach. It might also be a difficult sermon to receive. We are going to say again that anti-Semitism is a very bad thing. It is. It is a very, very bad thing. But I also want us to believe that there is something within us, that there might already be the seeds within us to be that kind of entitled and then that kind of exclusive. I, I want to I give that to you right up front. I want you tonight to allow your, or this morning, to allow your heart, your heart to be surveyed by God. Allow your heart to be mapped by God in the hopes that God would be able to find what might just today be a seed, but a seed, if left unchecked, could grow into something dangerous, and not just for you, but for the people around you. So here is a story I saw not too long ago, and by the way, we are still using this quote by Karl Barth that you need to take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but do interpret those newspapers by using your Bible. This is Bruno Day, and about three weeks ago, He was found guilty in a German court of crimes against humanity. This is a guy who was a a guard at one of the concentration camps, and here's a little story to kind of fill you in. Today, Bruno Day was found guilty as an accessory to the murders of 5,230 concentration concentration camp victims at Stutthof between the years 1944 and 1945. Now, throughout this trial, Day has always denied his guilt. He said that he was sent to work at the camp as a young soldier, that he never even used the weapons he was given, he never swore allegiance to the SS, and wasn't fully aware of the atrocities that were happening there. But as one of the lead prosecutors said today in his closing statements, to be any part of this kind of mass murder machinery, to look away is simply not enough. This was also supported by some of the uh, 35 Holocaust survivors who were also present throughout the trial who said that Bruno Day had played an active part in the murders there by preventing prisoners from being able to escape. Now, trials such as these of low-ranking SS officials and concentration camp guards who were accessories to the murders at concentration camps is a relatively new thing in Germany. The precedent was set back in 2011 when John Demjamniuk was uh, was convicted for being a concentration camp guard. Now, investigations into similar perpetrators have continued since then, and they continue today. But of course, because of the very advanced age of these alleged perpetrators, it's very difficult to bring them to justice. Uh, Therefore, the trial and the conviction today of Bruno Day is being called one of the last trials and convictions of a Nazi guard, perhaps even the last ever. Wow, the last ever, the last of its kind potentially. And and truthfully, this is interesting, the, the court actually was a juvenile court because when he would have perpetrated these things, he was 17 years old. 17 years old. Now, some of you are already perhaps rightfully offended 
Are you, John, comparing us to these types of people? What I'm asking you is this. Is it possible that Bruno Day, as a, as a young teenager, is it possible that he was not at one point capable of this kind of thing? What happened over a period of time for him to move a little bit at a time to the place where he could actually be capable of what he has now been convicted of? And so now the question is returned to me, and I'm returning it to you. What lurks beneath the surface, what lurks deep inside of us somehow, that is that seed that if left unchecked, if not uprooted somehow, that over a period of time could cause us to become monsters that right now we couldn't even imagine? I mean, what is it about a group of people, a person or a group of people, that can look at another person, another group of people, and feel entitled not only to my rights in my life, but entitled to your life? I mean, how does that happen? Do entitled people just drive you crazy? I, I, I do have an amen out here, yes. I miss amens. Yes, entitled people drive me crazy too. Paul is going to speak out against an entitlement that he sees bubbling just beneath the surface there in Rome. Amongst Gentile Christians, where these Jewish people are concerned. But as we hear this story in its own context, it's very important that we build the bridge to today, 2020. And I'm going to ask myself, I'm going to ask all of us, I'm going to ask everyone listening and watching the same question. What might there be just beneath the surface? What kind of entitlement do you perhaps suffer that allows you at some level, at any level, to exclude the other based on that sense of entitlement. Again, God, may we have the courage to let you look in the deep recesses of our heart on the off chance that there is something there that does, in fact, need to be uprooted. I mean, another way to ask the question is this. Is there a person who makes your skin crawl? Another way to ask is this. Is there a group of people that make your skin crawl? Is there a group of people that challenge, that challenge the most dear things that you believe? The challenge, the, the beliefs that you hold most dear, the things that you hide, you hold to most tightly. Is there a group of people that you find to be so far from where you are on any real spectrum that somehow, if you're honest, you kind of feel like you might be a little more human than they are? There is a dangerous sense of entitlement there that, again, left unchecked, will result in a dangerous kind of exclusivity. Dangerous exclusivity. Now, admittedly, what we have just heard about here with Bruno Day, all of that, the Holocaust, that is as radical an exclusivity as the world has ever seen. Radical exclusivity. But what if I were to tell you that what God has in mind and what Paul's trying to communicate to us now is something that we might call a radical inclusivity. Do you have it in you? If you do, it will be because God has placed it in you. <laughs> and if you have it in you because God has placed it in you, it is because at some point you've allowed God to work with you at the level of the deepest sort of entitlement that you might suffer, that I might suffer, that we might suffer. Again, we are talking about Rome. 
And again, we're going to access this story. The Jews had been expelled by Claudius, but now Claudius has died. And so the Jews are coming back. These, are, these would be Jewish believers, so Jewish Christians, but also non-Christian Jews were coming back. And the Jewish Christians were coming, at, coming back to find that the Gentile Christians had taken over the church. They had chosen all of the colors for all of the carpets and everything, and it was just maddening. Maddening for the Jewish Christians to come back and see that the Gentiles had taken their place. But here is what really concerns Paul tonight. It was also maddening to the Gentile Christians that the Jewish folks were coming back. Who do they think they are? This is our spot now. And by the way, if they were to say such a thing, it wouldn't just be a geographical thing. They weren't just saying, this is our church now. They were saying, hey, no, wait a minute. We're the family of God now. We've already heard that in this book already. The brothers and sisters of God. Jewish folks, you have had your chance, but now because we believe by faith, we're the brothers and sisters of Christ, the children of God, we'll be just fine without you. Without you. Paul is Jewish. Paul is very Jewish. He will say that a couple times in Scripture. Exceedingly Jewish. And so, even a whiff of this from these Gentile believers just sounds off the alarms in Paul's head. And so Paul wants to address this. Yes, because he's concerned about his Jewish kinfolk. But he is also concerned about these Gentile kinfolk because he knows that this kind of entitlement will lead to a dangerous kind of exclusivity. And these who would be entitled and then exclusive will themselves find themselves on the outside looking in if they're not careful. Let's actually go back. Let's go all the way back. I mean, all the way back to the book of Genesis. When God grabs Abram, Abram, who is not yet Abraham, and says, hey, I got an idea. I know you and Sarai, who have become Sarah, I know that you don't yet have the child that you want to have, but I'll tell you what, if you will follow me, I will make you into a family, and you will have so many descendants, it will be like the stars in the sky. And beyond that, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose Abram. God chose Abraham and Sarah. God chose these people to be the tool in God's hands, the means whereby God would bring, would bring hope and restoration and redemption to all people, not just the Jewish people, but through the Jewish people to all people. I, okay, pause button right there. How many Christians still believe that we are here, not just for the Christians, but for all the people? I, it is, I think it is part of our responsibility as Christians, and I would say as the people of Oklahoma City First Church, please kindly and gently and lovingly get into the faces of the other believers out there who don't yet get this and say, wait, 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 this is not about us. It includes us, but it's about everybody. Everybody. And pay careful attention to who gets left out of the everybody. I mean, pay careful attention to who you would kind of like to leave out of the everybody. And you know what? Pay careful attention to the people you think I might want to leave out of the everybody. Because there are those temptations, right? 
But God was saying to Abram, and God was saying to the people of Israel, this is how I'm going to do it. I am going to bring hope and restoration and redemption through you, my body. God has always wanted to have a body. And there was a point in time when that body was the nation, the people of Israel. Yes, there came a point at which that body was Jesus Christ. And yes, there is now a point in time when that body is us, the body of Christ. But way back when, it starts with the people of Israel. It starts with them. We continue their story. But Israel, admittedly, struggled when they remembered the first part, you are the chosen people, but they forgot the second part, called to accomplish the mission of God, the redemption of all people. And forgetting the first part meant forgetting their sense of corporate identity, remembering the first part, but then forgetting the second part led to their feelings, the Jewish folks, of entitlement and gave rise to their tendencies to exclude, to be self-absorbed, to identify all of those as not us, as the other, to subtract from the dignity and the humanity of the other, this process always, always, always ends in violence. Now, at this point in time, Paul's kinsman, his ethnic family, having lost the memory of their calling and failing to recognize in Christ the fulfillment of all of God's promises, find themselves now, in Paul's day, on the outside looking in where the blessings of grace and mercy are concerned. And now they are looking in on the Gentiles, the outsiders, the not-us crowd before, who now find themselves on the inner circle, the very inside, the very brothers and sisters of Christ. The Gentiles have now been adopted into the family. By the way, we're Gentiles. The Gentiles have been adopted into the family, but Paul now senses a familiar sickness creeping in, and he warns the Gentiles to consider themselves, to consider their place, to consider their blessings. Paul confronts this familiar and troubling dynamic now at work among the Gentile Christians. Maybe this will help us as well. As you know, this is a picture of Rembrandt's prodigal son. It's like this. So, Take, say for a second that the prodigal son, that represents all of us, us Gentiles, right? We're, we're the outsiders. We, we are outside the, the boundaries. We are outside of the purview of the Father. We, we, we find, but God in God's mercy finds us, welcomes us back home. Now, if you can see this picture, and for many of you it will be on your screen, in the top right-hand corner you see this cloudy, shadowy face. That's the older brother painted here as disapproving of the father's love now lavished on the Gentiles, lavished on the prodigal son. So the Gentiles are on the, the Gentiles are the, the child of God. They are the insiders now. But the older brother, the Jewish folks, they're on the outside wondering why the younger brother is getting all this attention. Really, you're going to put the shoes on this one? You're going to put the ring of, uh, that indicates family on this one? Now the older brother is upset, and as you know, you know this parable, he seems to stay outside. He seems to, he seems to stay outside of the party. But the dad goes out to him and says, please come in. Please come in. I, I, I want you to come in. We're not a complete family unless he's in there and you're in there with him. You're invited to this whole party. But you get the impression that the older brother, now representative of the Jewish people, is saying, nope, we're out. What Paul's worried about is that now this younger brother, 
now enjoying the ring, now enjoying the shoes, the slippers, now enjoying this meal and the celebration, Paul's concerned that this younger brother will now say, yeah, older brother, just go ahead and stay out. We'll take it from here. (laughs) Paul's worried that the younger brother is going to turn on the older brother now. Paul is worried that the younger brother now is feeling that sense of entitlement. Paul is worried that the Gentiles are now feeling this dangerous sense of entitlement that now is, is, looking, that now is going to result in their willingness to exclude the Jews. Paul's kinfolk, Paul's family, Paul's heritage. And again, Paul recognizes that there is danger dead ahead, yes, for the Jews who would be excluded by these entitled Gentiles now, but there is also danger for these entitled Gentiles. All right, pause button again. As you look around, and it's got it, we have to talk about our church, we have to think about Christianity writ large. Are there groups of people that we leave out? Are there groups of people that at some level we almost feel entitled to leave out? There's danger dead ahead, not just for the folks that we would leave on the outside, but for those of us who would leave folks on the outside. There's danger for us too. Let me give away the end here. People who exclude get excluded. Okay. So Paul is confronting their sin. And he says, I ask then, you Gentiles, has God rejected God's own people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It's hard to get more Jewish than me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has always known he wanted to have a people. He's always wanted to have a body. I'm telling you right now, you Gentiles may have rejected rejected these Jews, but God hasn't, and you dare not reject somebody that God hasn't rejected. Christians. We dare not reject someone that God has not rejected. Paul goes on to say, hey, let me remind you. (laughs) You were adopted into this family. Gentiles, you were adopted and it's great and we celebrate you as an equal. You're a child, you're a brother and sister of Christ and we're glad that you're here. But make no mistake, You're adopted into this family. I mean, listen to this, verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say... Yeah, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through faith. So don't become proud, but stand in awe. In awe of what? Of the very mercy of God. 
Let's, let's remind one another again, as Paul is reminding the Gentile Christians, if sitting where you are today, you understand yourself to be Christian, I celebrate the decision that you made at some point, but please know that God did way more of the work than you did. I worry about Christians, I worry about my own Christian heart when I let gratitude bleed away. When I am not in awe of the mercy of God, I am not yet where God wants me to be. Verse 21. For if God did not spare, this is hard to hear, guys. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. (laughs) Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, I just told you, excluders are excluded. Paul says right here. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they don't persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Skipping down to the verses that Kristen read for us earlier. Verse 28. As it has to do with the gospel, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay. They are enemies of God for your sake. They are not here. There is room for you here. But as regards election, they are beloved. These are God's first sons and daughters for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, Gentiles, but now, you old prodigal sons and daughters, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. There was room for you. So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. See, There are spots in this family for everybody, but those spots are never earned. They are gifted. And you get that, Gentiles. You get that, that these spots in the heart of God, in the family of God, they are gifted. Our hope is that the Jewish folks will recognize that they cannot earn their way into this family and earn their way into the heart of God, that they too will join us around this table because they will have answered the invitation of God given in the mercy of God. Because God wants both brothers, the older and the younger. So Gentiles, you dare not feel entitled to that which you have been given like a gift. And you dare not feel that sense of entitlement lest you will become one of those people who will exclude the other, forgetting that you're only here because of God's mercy too. Or, as N.T. Wright says, there are no promises of salvation for those who think it's their birthright. Is that terrifying to anybody else? By the way, N.T. Wright is not sharing N.T. Wright's opinion. He is sharing Paul's opinion. He is sharing a scriptural opinion. The promises of salvation are for those who know that they have no hope but to trust the mercy of God. But to trust the mercy of God. So as long as we're talking about current events, let me ask you some tough questions. How do you today experience the continuing story of racial tension? 
That's just one of the stories that we are monitoring these days. How are you, how am I experiencing the ongoing discussions and the conversations about the coronavirus? I don't know if you know this, but there are deep and strongly held opinions on either side of the exact same issue. I think entitlement is a danger for either side of these issues. I think the kind of entitlement that leads to a radical exclusivity is also a danger for folks on either side of some of these same issues. Where are the weirdo Christians out there who are trying to keep everybody at the table? Maybe let's come closer to home. Let's ask ourselves again. Is there anything in me, in you, in us, that hints of entitlement? Is there anything in me, in you, in us, that at all smacks of this tendency toward exclusivity? If yes, The bad news is that you're not yet different. If it's yes for me, it's that I'm not yet different. We are not yet different. That's the bad news. The good news is even there we're not far from the mercy of God that changes everything. Everything. We started with the Holocaust. We're gonna go back to the Holocaust. According to the Catholic calendar, today is a special day. It is the Feast of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Now, this is a relatively recently uh, honored saint. In 1982, he was canonized. He was beatified as late as 1971. He died at Auschwitz. This is a, a Polish ordained Catholic priest. And a leader in the community, so it made sense for him to be arrested and whisked off to Auschwitz. And the intent, this was the second time he'd been arrested, and the intent was to take his life because they would hope, they were, they were hoping that this would sort of break the back of the rebellion that was happening in and around Kobe. He was there for three months and suffered savage beatings, and, and one day in particular it was particularly bad because the prisoner had escaped. And so after they had beaten everyone, the commander of the, uh, the German army that was there walked through and said, we're going to take 10 lives today. This one and that one and this one and that one past Kolbe and this one and that one. You 10, follow me. And by the way, they would be killed via starvation. And so they lined up to go. And Colbe stepped out of line and said, not that one. He has wife and children. I will go in his place. He was asked, well, who are you? And he said, I'm a priest. I'm a priest. No name. No mention of his fame. Just silence. And as the story goes, the commandant, dumbfounded, perhaps with a fleeting thought of history, kicked this Polish sergeant out of line and back into his barracks and ordered Kolbe to go with the other nine, and he died weeks later. 
This is radical inclusivity. Radical exclusivity, that's the commandant taking lives. He's entitled not only to his own life, but to the other lives as well. But radical inclusivity says, no, no, no. I will give what I have to you for you. To you for you. I promise I'm not going to preach next week's sermon, but you should know what's coming next. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, given all that you have heard, given all that you've heard of how, how God forms a family, given all that you've heard about how you should be radically inclusive of the other because you understand that it's only by God's mercy that you are here today, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is what it means to worship. This is what it means to worship. Radical inclusivity. Okay, John, how do we get from here, wherever I am, to there? How do we resist this all-too-human tendency? How do we root out any sense of entitlement that would tempt us to exclude, demean, or even eliminate? How do we become people known for mercy and hospitality and sacrifice? Here's what we do. There's a lot of things that we do, but this one thing's very important. We remember and we rehearse as often as we can the mercy and hospitality and sacrificial love shown to us, perhaps most pointedly, around the table. I don't know if you saw my friend Tamara's Facebook post the other day. She was talking about the stains on the carpet. And there are stains. I was going to walk, but I, I noticed that there were stains everywhere on the carpet. Lots of stains. I can, I can see them from here. I want to read you a caption to this picture that she put on her Facebook page. It says, I took this picture a few weeks ago. To most, it looks like a stained carpet because that's exactly what it is. But if you're part of a community that takes Eucharist by intention, you know that these are tiny drops of juice. Months ago, these stains were meaningless, if not an eyesore. But now, they represent a time my heart aches for, when we could come together and respond to the invitation to come to the table. Ah, these tiny stains remind me of what we've lost in the last six months, and they give me hope that one day we will stain the carpet again. <laughs> They give me hope that one day we will stain the carpet again. Radical inclusivity is what we see and what we remember and what we rehearse around the table. Radical inclusivity. I have worried about us. In the, in the loss of the weekly Eucharist, I have worried that we have lost that thing that anchors us, that roots us. In our core story, which goes something like this, God in God's mercy chooses us. And I tell you this all the time, I tell you this all the time, that I hope we eat so much of this communion bread. Pastor, are you worried that we're going we're gonna to lose some of the significance of, of this if we have it every week? Oh, no, oh, no. 
If somehow I could decree that we would have it three or four times a day, I would do that so long as we could remember what it's for. I want you to eat so much bread that you become the bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given. That's radical inclusivity. The world has had quite enough, thank you, of radical exclusivity. Sometimes, sometimes perpetrated by people who know Scripture. They at least know Scripture verses. The church is crying out, and by that I mean OKC first, the larger church, capital C, and I would submit everywhere the light touches, it's all crying out for a group of people to practice a radical inclusivity because we understand that we are rooted in this core story that tells us we have what we have because God is good and merciful and relentless. Some of you are watching this on Sunday morning. At 5 p.m., Tamara and I and Zach and Jason will be right back here with a giant glorified Zoom call. And we are going to try to do what will be for me the strangest Eucharistic moment that I can ever remember. And I cannot wait. Now, we have those little prepackaged what I call bits and sips, and I, I, don't, I don't much like them. Um, but you know what? That's what we need to do. Very small price to pay to then somehow gather around this table and practice again. Remember and rehearse again the radical inclusivity. You, you remember, right, what we said all the way back in chapter 5. But God demonstrates God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy. And it's always been the belief of the church that if you could often enough gather the people of God, the body of Christ, around the table and nourish them with this story and the elements of the story, it's always been the belief of the church that then we could we could, we have a chance at least, to go outside of this place into our, our walks of life and where it has to do with our neighbors and our coworkers and our enemies and our opposites and our irritants and those people who believe the dumb things about the pandemic. That we could still be radically inclusive, rooted as we are in mercy. So if you're here tonight and you don't yet have your elements, Please get them on the way out. They're over here. If you are watching this this morning or any time before 5 o'clock, you want to drive by the church, come by and get your elements. And church, let's gather around the table again and let's remember and let's rehearse the source of life, which is the mercy of God. Now, if you're anything like me, it's a pretty good time to pray a prayer of confession. Because as I have studied for this sermon this week, I have been convicted on a regular basis. You know, you may need to think through how you feel about this group. This group. So I have a prayer of confession that I need to pray. I suspect I'm not the only one. So I'm going to pray that prayer of confession for us. 
Let it fall silent for a while while you pray your own prayers of confession, then close with these words that you've heard me read now several times, and then turn it over to my friend Jason to pray prayers of petition and intercession. Let's pray together. God, am I entitled? Are we entitled? Do you see in us the dangerous seeds of entitlement that could somehow, if left unchecked, grow into exclusivity and perhaps even a radical exclusivity? Search our hearts, God. We confess, Lord, that we are just human enough that there are certain types of people, there are certain people, perhaps even certain groups of people we find difficult. We confess, Lord, that there are so many other voices out there that are actually pulling us in the opposite and and bad and wrong direction. We confess that there are voices who would tell us that it might even be the Christian thing to do to separate from and to protect ourselves from and to draw a distinction from. And yet, we know this it's, it doesn't seem to be the living example of our Savior. That's what we need, Lord. We, we confess that we do not yet, we do not yet really fully understand what it means to live as your body. Help us, God. And now, God, in the silence, would you bring to mind Bring to mind that person or perhaps that group of people we struggle with. Bring to mind, Lord, the folks that we might exclude if left unchecked. receive these words now. May the Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life.